Welcome, everyone, to Season 1, Episode 4 of The Games People Play with Bernie Corbett. You're with me. I'm Bernie Corbett. And I want to welcome everybody in here today. As, uh, as promised, we're going to make our first visit to the Gridiron and uh, with our guest, uh, Bert Jones. And I want to thank last week's guest, Robert Parrish. And uh, dare I say it, we are going to be in the state of Louisiana once again. We were last week in Shreveport with Robert Parrish, and we're going to be in Ruston with our guest, Bert Jones, here, uh, coming up to join us in just a moment. Uh, before we begin, we just uh, want to uh, say some thank yous and acknowledge some of the people that helped to make this possible. And uh, beginning with the four, sports bar and restaurant, uh, voted by Sports Illustrated as the number one sports bar and restaurant in the great country of the USA. And uh, they still hold that record, uh, in my estimation, and the estimation of uh, people around the world that visit here on their trips to Boston. So make it part of your visit to Boston on Canal Street, just across from the TD Garden. I want to thank uh, Peter Colton, Jimmy Taggart, everybody here at the Fours for all of their support in allowing us to broadcast from this great sports venue. Uh, also, uh, to uh, Kelly Sports, and I uh, want to thank uh, the games people play uh, for uh, Kelly Sports, and uh, we have uh, really uh, benefited greatly from Kirsten Kelly and all the help that she's given us. And a reminder, if you're looking for a pro athlete, former or current, for a personal appearance, sales presentation, trade show, or corporate appearance, Kelly Sports and Consulting are the folks that can help. You can give Kirsten a shout at 781-888-2791, or you can check her out on Facebook at Kelly Sports and Consulting. And as always, thank you to Kirsten. And also for our uh, home, away from home, uh, once future home uh, for broadcast uh, purposes, uh, Phil Castanetti from Sports World, New England's largest sports memorabilia shop since 1986 on Route 1 in Saugus. And uh, thanks to Phil Castanetti and all the help that he has given us uh, in order to launch our program here this summer. And, uh, well, uh, without uh, further ado, we want to bring in our guest. Uh, always uh, like to bring in a guy that has a great nickname, and uh, this guy certainly qualifies he became the Rustin Rifle. He'll be talking to us from Rustin, Louisiana, the MVP of the National Football League in 1976, Mr. Burt Jones, a descendant of NFL royalty, if you will, uh, with his dad, Dub Jones, who we're also uh, going to talk about, who's still going strong at 95 years young. And uh, it's a pleasure to have Burt come in and join us uh, here. Welcome to the games people play, Burt. Well, thank you, Bernie. It's a pleasure to be here. Great I look to forward have... to visiting that sports bar. It's got, it looks like an interesting uh, arena that you're in. in, in indeed. This is, uh, this is really uh, one of uh, the, uh, the gems of the, uh, the Boston scene, uh, particularly for sports fans. So uh, if you make it to Boston, hopefully you will. We'll be getting out of this, uh, this whole pandemic and people will be traveling. Uh, just tell them Bernie sent you, Bert, when you come to uh, the Force. I definitely will. <laughs> Absolutely. You'll enjoy yourself. First liar no? doesn't have a chance, does he? But I would like to see it. <laughs> but I'm COVID ready all the time. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Indeed, you've got your mask at the ready. We all have to, unfortunately, uh, with, the, uh, with the circumstances uh, presented uh, in the world today. Just, uh, just put part, of the, part of the human condition here, unfortunately, that we're all dealing with. And... Uh, you were uh, back uh, in your office uh, in Ruston, and uh, that's where 
it began and uh, where you returned to after your NFL career. And uh, just to uh, begin at the beginning, uh, growing up uh, in Ruston, Louisiana, uh, attending high school there where you uh, got your, your nickname, the Ruston Rifle. Also, uh, Bert, uh, as far as your early life, I uh, had uh, seen in my research that uh, you did have uh, some ailments uh, to deal with as a child. Uh, as a matter yeah. of fact, I guess uh, if you could tell us a little bit about, uh, you, you had a little bit to overcome from a physical standpoint, similar to O.J. Simpson, I believe, with the a similar ailment that he had as a young kid. Well, I'm not sure about O.J.'s uh, early years ailment, but uh, I, back then, I, uh, they said I had rickets. Now, my mother says there's no way because many oranges and fruit is what I ate. But I did wear braces on my legs, I don't know, between the years of three, and I threw them off kind of like uh, Forrest Gump uh, before <laughs> I went to school. But they were exactly those type braces that I wore to kind of straighten my legs out. Worked out all right. And uh, as a matter of fact, that was the reference on OJ that he had, had had rickets, I guess is commonly what was referred to. But uh, you ended up uh, pigeon-toed and a little bit, I guess a lot of guys that go through that, pigeon-toed and a little bow-legged, which to me spells athlete. No, I'm not bow-legged. I am pigeon-toed. <laughs> pigeon-toed, uh, yes. And if you'll notice, there are very few sprinters that are not pigeon-toed. That's true. Uh, so they're typically the fastest of which my father was one, or is. He's not that fast anymore, but he was fast in his day. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, we'll get the stopwatch. We'll see what his 40 time is right now uh, for, for your dad. God bless him. Still going strong. We'll, we'll talk about him in a moment. And uh, attended high school there where you uh, got the, uh, the name, the nickname that stuck the rust and rifle. Uh, illustrious high school career in Ruston, Louisiana, uh, always curious about the recruiting process and uh, the number of schools that were uh, chasing you at the time and uh, if there was uh, any, uh, any doubt as far as your decision to, uh, to stay close to home, state U, LSU when you left Ruston, or were there some other uh, strong candidates in the running when you made that decision? You know, there really were. Of course, I, I, I was pretty distorted because uh, as crazy as it may sound, Bernie, when I got out of high school, I knew I had to go to college before I could get to pro ball. So it wasn't so much going to play college football as it was taking the next step to get to pro ball. Um, I was what you would call a late bloomer, um, both probably physically, and I still haven't matured mentally, but uh, I'm, I'm still working way. on it. Right. Uh, we all so are. I wasn't that highly recruited, uh, and we probably we didn't probably we had the best quarterback in the entire United States uh, playing right down the street from me, who was mm. recruited by everybody in the world. Uh, a dear friend of mine, a guy named Joe Ferguson, right uh, in Shreveport, yeah, in Shreveport, which is you know they were our uh, a rivalry for us in high school. So we we played football against each other, ran track against each other. So we kind of grew up knowing each other. And he was without a doubt the, high, the highest recruited quarterback in the country. And so, you know, I was kind of like the second fiddle. Uh, nobody uh, of any real significance was really 
reaching out to me that hard. <laughs> uh, you know, I did, of course, we've got a great, we've got two great schools here in, in the town that I live. One is Louisiana Tech, and it's known for having great players. And my brother was playing for Louisiana Tech at the time, and, and actually a pretty good quarterback that went on and played in Pittsburgh, Terry Bradshaw, was playing. Right. And, uh, and then where my father helped, set up the offensive system and where he worked out when he was playing pro ball and where I ultimately ended up working out playing when I played pro ball is Grambling State, which is uh, two miles from my house. So I, I uh, actually, I, I'll never forget Coach Eddie Robinson was uh, in my father's lumberyard because they were best of friends uh, forever. I mean, I grew up knowing Coach Rob as, as, Coach Rob, my dad's best friend, that every Saturday morning and every other day that he's at home, they'd be getting together and talking football. But he came up to me on one Saturday morning, I think it was about February or so, and he says, now, Bert, if you don't hurry up and sign with somebody, I'm going to be forced to offer you a scholarship. <laughs> and I wasn't as quick-witted. Well, I'm not now either. But I said, Coach, be careful what you ask because I'll come if you ask me. But uh, actually, Louisiana Tech, which is a great school, had great quarterback play and, and was a very competitive school then and now, offered me a scholarship. My father's uh, school that he ultimately played, uh, he, he first went to LSU and then he graduated from Tulane. And uh, Tulane recruited me. And then after Joe Ferguson decided to go to the University of Arkansas, LSU became more interested in me. And that's where, and, and my thought was, I want to play in the biggest arena against the stiffest competition with the best players I could. And, and my choice was LSU. And it was a great choice. Mm -hmm. You mentioned about, uh, about high school and uh, you had a coaching legend to guide you in high school, which amazingly, same high school coach as your dad, Dub Jones. So he can claim two Jones boys Hall of Famers uh, from, uh, from, uh, on his resume as a high school football coach. Remarkable. Yeah, Coach Hall Scarrett was a dear friend. And uh, he was my father's high school football coach. And actually, they won the state championship uh, when my father was a senior back then. It was his second senior year. But they really only went to high school three years in 41. Uh, but they did win the high school uh, state championship. And then he was my coach and, and he was, I have four brother siblings and he was their coach also. So a dear friend and his son was, was, and still is a great friend of mine who also ran a nine 500 in 1956, which huh. is pretty fast. That, that is pretty, that's pretty fast today, let alone 1956. That's, that's a pretty good number. Yeah. And, uh, the, the athletic lineage didn't just stop with your dad, but your grandfather, <laughs> All-American for the, uh, a legend for the, uh, the green wave of uh, Tulane. Your, your mom said dad. that. That is correct. My father was an All-American and is in the Tulane Hall of Fame. And my mother's father uh, is, was an All-American in football and baseball. And, and the weird thing is he was ambidextrous. And I can't prove it, but it was during that time frame when he was playing, but he would pitch right-handed and left-handed, and he could do it to the same batter back then because it wasn't a rule <laughs> against it. 
uh, and growing up, he, he was, he went, he played football and baseball at Louisiana Tech. And then to pay his way through medical school at Tulane, he played football and baseball there. Back then, there wasn't a, a number of years that you could play uh, your college eligibility. So he played four at Tech and four at Tulane while he was in med school. And he taught me how to throw a knuckleball, a curveball, and he was some kind of athlete. There's no question about it. Once again, great, uh, great lineage, great uh, bloodlines. As is really the, the, the state of Louisiana, there's been numbers uh, posted in recent years about more NFL players per capita from the state of Louisiana. But let's just think about the quarterback position from the state. You mentioned Terry Bradshaw, uh, the Mannings, obviously, with the roots to the state of Louisiana. Uh, Y.A. Tittle, Hall of Famer and LSU quarterback. Uh, Joe Ferguson. Something in the water down there. We haven't even talked about the Duck Dynasty guy. He might have been one of the better, the better ones if he hadn't wanted to shoot ducks. You know, Phil was a pretty good player. Now, he was not as good as Terry. Yep. He was a year ahead of Terry, and, and Terry would have had trouble starting over him. But uh, Phil was a pretty good player. He, he and my older brother, Bill, uh, hmm. came in to Louisiana Tech together, and they were teammates. So I've known Phil – not only from the duck blind, but I've known Phil from his playing days uh, at, at Louisiana Tech. So, and you didn't mention Shaq, didn't mention Doug Williams, David Woodley. I think there were five yeah. starting quarterbacks in the NFL when I was playing that I either played high school against or grew up within 60 miles of each other. Well, once again, it might be something in the water down there in the bayou. I don't know. But uh, breeding uh, I, I quarterbacks. I think it has to do with gene pool. Gene yeah. pool. <laughs> you had to be pretty rough and tough tough to uh, settle in the hills of North Louisiana and Louisiana in general. <laughs> and Bobby Bear, forgot about Bobby. Bobby Bear. that's right. Yeah, but he's from down the bayou. So uh, he's, uh, that's different than these hills. Can't, can't claim him. One, one, of those, one of the parishes down, uh, down in the bayou country. Uh, this is true. Yeah. Exactly. LaFouche Parish, to be exact. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, once again, your upbringing, uh, certainly a little bit uh, a little bit of an aberration. I guess you, you took it as uh, just a standard procedure and accepted, but you really grew up around the NFL. I mean, you, you were very young when your dad finished as a player for, for, the, uh, for the Browns, but as a coach, you were very much uh, part of the scenery with uh, your summer vacation being spent at uh, NFL training camp and hanging around with the likes of Jim Brown with the Cleveland Browns and, 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 uh, and, and, and some of those great stars that the Browns had at that time. Uh, you know, uh, died and gone to heaven is an 11-year-old. Uh, <laughs> my father uh, came back as the offensive coach. You would call it the offensive coordinator now under Blanton Collier um, in 62. And so uh, a prerequisite or requirement for him to coach is that hey, he wasn't going to spend the summer away from his family. <laughs> so <laughs> literally my mother, my sisters, my brothers, we all went to Hiram, Ohio uh, to Hiram College, and that's where the Browns had training camp. And the boys would farm out, you know, one night I may be sleeping with Clifton McNeil, 
one night, who knows, Gene Hickerson. And, and so the boys, mainly me, because I was uh, at that impressionable age where I was definitely in the mix, but I was a ball boy. We washed the socks, the jocks, made the rolls, put them up every day and made lifelong friends. I, uh, I saw Jim Brown. Uh, well, I saw him at the championship game this year. And then um, I saw him in Cleveland about two years ago, but Paul Warfield, you just go down the list. They were Frank Ryan. I warmed up Frank Ryan and Jim Nanowski every day before practice. So yeah, it was a tough life I had to live. I mean, I did not get a vacation. <laughs> That's right. We'll call that a working vacation because of a working uh, vacation. The, the occupation that you ended up uh, pursuing uh, certainly came in handy. Your dad, and uh, I know that uh, when we set up the interview, you said mandatory viewing, and thank goodness you made it mandatory viewing. I mean, as an NFL aficionado, I knew your dad, but I feel like I know him a lot better after seeing a recent interview for the 95 years young uh, Dub Jones reliving and reliving in great detail his career in the American, the, the uh, All-American Football Conference and then the NFL with the Cleveland Browns. Uh, he, he was uh, a very inf influential and uh, also, uh, if, you, if you look at it, uh, trend-setting uh, in terms of the flanker position was almost designed by Paul Brown for your dad. Well, it wasn't almost, it was. Uh, he, was he was what we would call the first flanker. Yes. Um, so, you know, sometimes he was a running back and then he would flank out whether it be in motion or in a set position. Uh, he was a, a very gifted athlete. And plus, he was tall and lanky. He is 6'4", and I think uh, he ran a 9'800 at two lanes, so he was probably the fastest man in the league at the time. Um, and he was kind of a quarterback, even though they didn't have quarterbacks. They had a tailback that caught the ball on a deep snap when he was in high school. Uh, so he was used to handling the ball. He had great hands and he was, you know, pretty elusive and just a, a lot of fun. And he's a smart guy. He graduated in engineering, mm. different than I. Uh, but uh, so, you know, he, he was somebody that could do a lot of things. So, yeah, I grew up, you know, Otto Graham was, you know, kind of like my godfather. I knew him <laughs> as well as I knew anybody else. Dante Lavelli, Mike Speedy, Jim Brown. Uh, Jim Brown came to visit me at my lumber mill about 15 years ago just to stop because he was in the area and he came uh, and stayed with daddy and it was a, a, a nice event. So, uh, but these were normal people. And now that I've gotten older and, and probably more wise, I'm going, wow, this is pretty unique, wasn't it? And Otto, you mentioned about Otto Graham and uh, maybe because uh, it has been such a, a, a gap uh, in terms of generations now, but not appreciated. You, you talk about one of the ultimate winners in sports. I mean, there's a guy that never lost from the All-American Football Conference as a quarterback, didn't break stride coming to the NFL in 1950. Uh, when you talk about winners, uh, he's every bit a winner as a Bill Russell or a Yogi Berra or any of the other guys across uh, the landscape of sports that uh, have, uh, that have uh, multiple championships and, and uh, great lineage. Yeah, and Yogi and my father were roommates. There's a little bit of trivia for you. At World War II, correct? 
Well, neither of which saw action or uh, they were coming out of college at the end of the war and they were both sent to uh, submarine base. And let's see, uh, it's right out, uh, what, uh, just right there on the coast, wherever the, uh, the submarine base was. And daddy was playing football, but he didn't want to play while they were fighting. So he said, I'm not going to play ball until we're through this war. And <laughs> Yogi wanted to play football, but uh, they didn't. Now, bear in mind, there weren't but three or 400 other people in the gymnasium where they slept. But <laughs> we always laugh. I, uh, I, I knew my father knew Yogi all of my life, and they were friends. And coincidentally enough, I don't know if you knew this, but uh, my second or third year in the pros, Tim Bear out of UMass, right. uh, Yogi's son came, uh, and and we were roommates. We had a house just up from the stadium, and you know we were pretty conscientious about going to work every day. And uh, <laughs> I'm, I was laughing. My mother and father and Carmen and Yogi came to town. We were all sitting down at the restaurant, and Yogi and Daddy was saying. Do y'all realize that we, when we were your exact same age, we were roommates? <laughs> <laughs> a little, little different circumstances, but amazing. Yes. Yep. Significant. Wow. Yeah, that's right. You got a chance. Tim was a receiver. You got a chance to throw to Tim Barra. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And got to know his brother Dale real well. They're good mm-hmm. folks. Yeah, absolutely. And you and your dad also... I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the distinction of being father and son in the NFL record book. You had your 17 consecutive completions against the Jets in 1974. And uh, November 27th, 1951, your dad had a pretty good day. Only two other guys in NFL history, six touchdowns in one NFL game. He shares that with Ernie Nevers and uh, Gail Sayers. And uh, I guess a testament to what you would uh, articulated in terms of uh, your, your father's uh, all-around uh, skill, ability, speed. I mean, he was, he was the whole package uh, offensively. He was a good player. Of course, he had some great players. Dante Lavelli, Max Speedy, his receivers, Marion Motley. Uh, they just go down the list. Matter of fact, uh, they had a pretty good tackle and a kicker, Lou Groza, mm-hmm. and his son and I, John, have, have reconnected because he would work as a ball boy too. Because when Lou was – in, in what we'll call the waning years of his career, he became strictly a kicker and not a position player. And so he kind of had the luxury of bringing John around training camp. So um, how many years ago was that? 62 to now, uh, two years ago, we, we got three years ago, we got back together in Cleveland uh, and had a big time. So we communicate now. Getting back to uh, your decision to go into Baton Rouge, attend LSU, You're big, in time. big big, uh, big state university, and uh, the the opportunity to play at LSU. Uh, Charlie McClendon was the head coach, and when I went back and I remember you playing at LSU, and I remember some of those uh, some of the big games that you had during that time, but it was a rather uh, slow start uh, to your career. Uh, only made two starts before the end of your junior year. You split time <laughs> with another quarterback, Paul Lyons. And I guess would it be fair to say some 
philosophical differences with Charlie McClendon's offense as opposed to you that obviously had the ability to be such a, a premier, pure drop-back type of passer? Well, uh, and, and correct. Philosophical differences, no problems. Um, you know, I went to LSU to be with the best players and everything that I could be with and playing in the biggest arena against the toughest competition. Um, and, I, you know, I, I, I was of the mindset that I thought that they would probably throw the ball a little more than they did, but it, it all worked out just fine. Paul Lyons to this day is a dear friend of mine. Mm-hmm. He was a great little shifty option type quarterback. And so, you know, I probably have an, a record at LSU the most pass complete, the highest pass completion percentage on third and 10 plus, because that's the only time we threw. (laughs) (laughs) No, but it wasn't bad. It was a great time. And Mm -hmm. and we had a lot of success. Um, And actually that was against Notre Dame, who their coach was also a dear friend of my father, Air Parsegian, Mm -hmm. uh, because he played with the Browns also, as did Don Shula and Chuck Noll. And you just go down the list. These were people that were uh, co-mingled with as just regular, ordinary people in my life when now that I'm grown up, man, those are some famous folks. (laughs) (laughs) Those those are guys that have uh, busts in places like Canton, Ohio, as a matter of fact, Bert. Oh, yeah, most of of them do. Yep, they were just regular guys to you. Just, you know, your your dad's uh, whole network of friends in the football world. This is true. Yeah. And – once again, a little bit of probably some frustration early on in your career until you became uh, the starter uh, for the LSU team. Do you ever consider the possibility of, of transferring to another program? Was there any program that you might have had in mind <laughs> that you might have been uh, maybe more suited to uh, letting you maybe air it out a little bit more? Uh, as a matter of fact, yes, and I almost did. <laughs> uh-huh. But uh, where were you headed? Friend, Can you reveal that now? Is the statute of limitations up? I, I hope so, uh, and I made the right decision by not. Now, yes, bear in mind this is even then it wasn't as if I wasn't happy at LSU, uh, but I yeah. did think that I would should be playing more and. Uh, I was hoping our style would change a little bit, and it did. It progressed as they allowed me to play more. Uh, So I'm not complaining that much. But it was kind of frustrating because after my sophomore year, every time I'd go in was third and 10, third and 15, third and 20, and then I'd come back out, go in, throw the ball, come back out. Uh, So I I didn't really get a chance to to play, and and I could tell um, that – and and it worked for him. So don't so don't discount the fact that Coach McClendon was very successful, and, and he had a mindset of what he wanted to do, and he did it, and and had great success with it. Uh, but he all he, early in his career, he lost his quarterback, and it set him so far back that he said, "I'll never be in that position. I'll never not have at least two quarterbacks playing in the game all the time." Hmm. Uh, and I thought that that might change when I got there, but actually it never did. Uh, uh, it didn't. Uh, but as I mentioned earlier, a good friend of mine was uh, the head coach. My, a good friend of my father's was a coach uh, at that small Catholic school in South Bend. <laughs> That's right. And, small Catholic uh, school, yeah. 
and I actually went through the due diligence and I, I'm sure the statute of limitations are over. My daddy didn't even know it. Um, really? <laughs> yeah, he would not have gone very much for that, but uh, only because uh, rightfully so, if you start something, finish it. And that's what I did. But I was in position that I almost did. And then a dear friend of mine at LSU, who was also an Olympic trainer and a dear friend of mine. And he said, Bert, he came up to me because I consulted with him on this. And he says, you know, there's no question in my mind that you will start and you'll be the greatest quarterback that they ever had. But I know you and I know your family. I know your grandfather. I know your father. He said, you're going to come to Louisiana. And, and if you abandon LSU at this stage in your career and have success somewhere else, you won't be able to come back. Uh, it won't be home for you anymore. And I said, you know what? Louisiana is home. This is where I want to be. This is if I ever get married, where I want to raise a family. And I said, you know, you're probably right. I better stay. And I did. And I had great times and great success and no complaint. You might have succeeded Joe Theismann. Theismann, when I met him. That's right. It didn't rhyme until... The, the media relations people at Notre Dame wanted it to rhyme. That's correct. That's right. I believe John Heisler was the, uh, the director of media relations. He said, I think we're going to change the pronunciation of your name, son. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> funny how that worked out. Uh, overall, your time at LSU, 26-6-1 was the, was the record through your three years. 12-2-1 uh, as a starter. And uh, in, the, in the 17 games uh, that you played, uh, almost 53% completions, threw for over 3,200 yards, 28 touchdowns, uh, the attempts over 400 attempts, 220 completions. When you left LSU, well, I guess you made the right move because all the records belong to you when you left LSU. <laughs> Not anymore. They had a pretty good player this year. Yes, they did. Well, I want to talk about him a little bit later that. Absolutely. Yeah. Name escapes me, but he was pretty good. We'll have to think about that. Oh, neither, I know him well. Indeed. <laughs> neither one of us to have a senior moment here. But uh, oh, it, 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 indeed. 9-1-1. Uh, I, I, I one. know it's Joe Burrow. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. <laughs> it's, it, it's so, so do I. So does everybody in the, uh, that followed college football last year. What a meteoric rise for him. But uh, that uh, senior year for you, 9-1-1. Uh, and uh, overall, and uh, a tough loss to Tennessee. You played in the, in the old Astro Blue Bonnet Bowl at, the, at the, uh, the Astrodome, but really thrived, came into your own uh, as the man in charge uh, during that 1972 season. And uh, I guess you could say the signature moment, you knew this was coming, of the 1972 season and one that they're <laughs> still talking about Almost 50 years later, and uh, the lore of LSU and Southeast Conference football uh, was uh, the Ole Miss game and uh, the 80-yard drive to win uh, with how much time left on the clock? I guess they were still talking about that now. You and your quick release there down the stretch. Yeah, nobody can ever accuse me of not having a quick release, that's for sure. But the answer is we had as much time as it took for me to get another playoff. <laughs> that's terrible. Arch and I... You see, I'll, I'll show you. If you look over here, you see these dollar bills on the wall? Yes. <clears throat> Archie and I have had a standing bet for about the last 30 years. LSU, Ole Miss, and 
And of course, my mother does not allow gambling in our family. And so one dollar is not gambling. So the loser has to sign a dollar bill and send it to the winner. And uh, there was a <laughs> long time when I was sending a lot of them to Archie. Yes. Uh, but the ones on the left, are Archie, and the ones over here, are Alabama, and then those are Joe Ferguson, Arkansas. Oh, Arkansas. <laughs> And uh, th that game uh, that we referred to, uh, I guess it's one that as a kid, particularly a kid growing up in Louisiana, and uh, you, you, I'm sure you can kind of close your eyes and can envision what Tiger Stadium was like on that Saturday night down the stretch. Uh, Bedlam, taking the team down the field. And uh, was there any truth? That, was that something that you uh, cultivated in the, in the years that have followed? that the clock operator might have been a distant relative, maybe a second cousin, well, Bert? Yeah. <clears throat> well, that's what I'm saying. He wasn't close, Ken. Uh, <laughs> but I knew him pretty well. Uh, it, was, it was one of those things. You know, every child growing up has these marquee uh, type events. You know, the count's 3-2, bases are loaded, mm -hmm. you're at bat, two outs and you're down by three and you hit a home run. You know, everybody makes up those uh, scenarios as they progress through sports. And, and you just really don't get those opportunities very often. And this was one just like it. I mean, we were down by six points. <clears throat> we were 80 yards away to score. Uh, virtually no time on the clock within two minutes. And we drove the ball 80 yards and ultimately with one second left on the clock, we score a touchdown and beat Ole Miss. Final it was a great, a great event. Indeed, great event that, once again, they're still talking about. And uh, I, I got to ask you, did you ever see some of those signs that appeared on the Louisiana-Mississippi border in the aftermath? <laughs> Uh, you know what I'm referring to? that, yes. Please set your clock back four seconds. Four seconds. Louisiana. Or four seconds, yeah. Well, what's worse than that is somebody there uh, had the license plates for my car. And so mm -hmm. to get from Baton Rouge, there are two ways. You can come around through Alexandria and stay in Louisiana or cut across the boot through Mississippi, through Natchez, Mississippi, and into Ruston. And that, without a doubt, at the time was about 30 minutes quicker. But after the first three times I went that way, Every time I entered the Mississippi line, they knew my car and I got a speeding ticket. <laughs> and look, I had an El Camino and the bumper was on this side and the engine wouldn't even rev up high enough to get me over 35. So I know I wasn't speeding, but so it took me a while to be able to drive through Mississippi again. But yeah, there's some bad blood there. You, you, weren't, you weren't speeding, you were being profiled. That's what happened. Yeah. That, that's yes. right. You were easy, easy well, I wasn't target. Profile. I mean, it was, I think they had. That was, they had my license plate and they radioed it forward. <laughs> the Mississippi Constabulary was still upset. I'm not surprised. A great, great victory. Uh, highlight of that senior season. Uh, a year that you were a consensus All-American, uh, first LSU quarterback uh, as uh, All-American uh, status. Uh, you were the Sporting News College Football Player of the Year. And uh, speaking of uh, the Heisman, uh, fourth in the Heisman Trophy running. So you certainly put yourself in a position, as you mentioned a few moments ago, 
in terms of being able to make the right move, the logical step to get to the pro ball, you did put yourself in an A position to get the pro ball. Uh, I did, and, and, and happy for it, and mm-hmm. had a lot of fun playing pro ball. Mm-hmm. That started, actually, when you, you look at uh, it, it started before it started, if you will, uh, in terms of being able to uh, go to Baltimore and to become a member of the uh, Baltimore Colts organization. Because just eight days before the NFL draft, the Baltimore Colts traded, arguably, a lot of conversations, uh, certainly up until uh, recently, about the greatest quarterback of all time, John Unitas. He was traded on January 22nd to San Diego. NFL draft eight days later. And uh, to the Baltimore Colts with the number two selection of the 1973 draft, Burt Jones. What about your reaction in terms of being drafted by the Colts? I mean, you were, had a great sense of NFL history, obviously, because of the time you spent with the Browns. But what about uh, the opportunity to go to Baltimore? What, what immediately came to mind? Well, it was just a great uh, franchise and a great opportunity to go play in the NFL. Um, you know, the, <clears throat> the Baltimore franchise, the Baltimore Colts, uh, had won championships and championships, always had great players and great coaches. And I was looking forward to it. It wasn't the Cleveland Browns, but – you know, you don't get to choose. <laughs> exactly. If you'd had your preference, you would have loved to have, uh, you know, followed your dad uh, all the way through and become a Brown, but uh, not the case. If Ann and Butts were sugar and nuts, we'd all have a Merry Christmas. Exactly, exactly. And uh, you come to the Browns, Unitas departure. Uh, excuse me, you come to the Colts. You got me, that was Freudian. Uh, you, go, you go to the Colts. Uh, United said departure in that same week. And uh, obviously, a lot of talk about the heir apparent and, and filling the shoes. How did you handle that at the time in terms of, I mean, it, it happened within a week. It was United goes, now we got the kid from LSU with the big arm coming in. Well, the problem with that is, is I didn't go to Baltimore. Uh, we went to Chicago for the college all-star game. Ah, that's right. Yep. And so instead of going to training camp like everyone else, we went to Chicago and played in the college all-star game. And who was my roommate? Joe Ferguson. Ah. who was also my roommate in the high school all-star game in Baton Rouge. So like I say, you know, times repeat itself. But it was a great game. We played against Miami Dolphins, and we actually almost beat them. And mm. that was the undefeated team. Undefeated team. Uh, and so then – I come back to Baltimore, and now it's preseason. So I was late coming. Uh, Of course, nobody had more respect for John Unitas than I did then nor now. Great player. Um, And a lot of people said, well, it's got to be tough following John Unitas. And I'm going, well, not really. He set a benchmark of being great. I'm proud to follow. I'm not competing with John Unitas. I'm playing the same position as John Unitas for the same team after he's been gone. Uh, and John and I were good friends until his death. He came in, Howard Schnellenberger was the coach your first two seasons. Yep. Howard obviously went on to a national championship with Miami Hurricanes back at the college level. A uh, long time, very well respected. And uh, then really began 
to uh, to blossom as an NFL quarterback. You know, it does take certainly take time at that position. Your third year, a former NFL quarterback in his own right, Ted Marshabroda, becomes the head coach, and uh, you really had a chance uh, to work. Uh, it seems like uh, well with him, uh, with the three division championships uh, the, the next three years. What about Coach Marshabroda and? Uh, was there a simpatico with him taking over as head coach that uh, led to success? Well, <clears throat> my maturity as an NFL player came at that stage in the game. Uh, I had this disrupted training camp, uh, as you noted, or as I noted, by going to the college all-star game. The second year when I came back in the league, that was the first NFL player strike. And so we didn't have training camp. Nobody came to training camp. So the first time I came to training camp was two days before the first preseason game. And, you know, so you can't discount Howard Snellingberger as having not been able, not developing me because he never had an opportunity to coach me except put in the game plan. Right. Uh, of which I have great respect for. I had great respect for him then, and I still do now. He's a great coach and a good guy fun to be around. Uh, but Coach Marchabroda came in and things, uh, I had an opportunity at that time, there wasn't any NFL strike. And so I literally, uh, I uh, spent about two months in Hunt Valley Inn in Baltimore <laughs> because the old Colts uh, office was next door. And Ted and I just sat down and, and, and went through film, through the game plan, through the playbook and, and just kind of harmonized our thinking. And so we got it all put together, and uh, it works out pretty well. He's a great coach, great strategist. I mean, uh, he had great success in Baltimore, then he had great success in Indy, and he had great success in Buffalo. I mean, he, he was the uh, – he, he started the shotgun with Jim Kelly, in, in Buffalo. So he had a lot of great ideas and, and great success and a dear friend. And a, a pretty dramatic, uh, one of the, uh, the great turnarounds in NFL history. I know you take pride in that as, uh, as the, the guy that was at the controls of that offense from 1974 to 1975, the first of your three AFC East championships and a nine game winning streak. Everybody in, uh, do you remember the excitement in Baltimore that the Colts are back for the first time? It was a little bit of a hiatus there, but the excitement in that town for that team and uh, the fact that there was a, a rebirth of the franchise. It really was, and it was, <clears throat> it was pretty dramatic. Uh, that year we opened against Chicago, in Chicago, Soldier Field, and we won. But then – we lost the second game, and we lost the third game, and lost the fourth game, and lost the fifth game. So we were one and four. But the difference was is, is in each one of those losses, we were competitive and, and coming together and gelling. And um, so we felt like we were still in the, in, in the game. And, and Ted, the ultimate optimist, he said, gang, all you have to do is win out, and we'll be in the playoffs. And so then we won the next one. So now we're, we're two and four. And it was a pretty dramatic comeback. I think at the time, possibly even now, it was the greatest single-year turnaround in the NFL. Is that your phone or mine? Uh, we went from two and 12 to 10 and four. Uh, and it was, Amazing. It was, 
it was something to hang your hat on. Off and running there in, in 75, the, uh, the first of those, uh, those three AFC East titles. And then uh, I guess fair to say that 1976, it really all came together. Your most valuable player season, uh, the only guy in the NFL to throw for 3,000 yards that year, uh, 24 touchdown passes. Your passer rating was uh, 102.5. It's only three guys in the decade. You get an idea of how the game was then to how it is now. Uh, Roger Starbuck and uh, Ken Stable, the only other two to achieve a 100-plus QB rating, uh, completed over 60% of your passes, 11-3, uh, all-pro status. Uh, as you think back to that season, and also to give you an opportunity to, to talk a little bit about the array of weapons that you had surrounding you there uh, at that time with, uh, you know, Lydell Mitchell in the backfield and, and uh, uh, Glenn Doughty. Uh, and uh, I also wanted to, to get uh, some insight as to uh, the chemistry, if you will, uh, that you had with Roger Carr because uh, that, was, that was one of the NFL's best during that time. Jones to Carr was, uh, you know, put it on the board at that point. <laughs> uh, it was it – was, uh pretty electric it was really it was really a lot of fun I uh I think about that team uh you know one thing that Ted taught us is collectively you can be great individually you can be good and and we took a lot of pride in that um and you had Glenn Dowdy as my flanker who was as tough a possession receiving uh, flanker as there was, I don't care who you were except for Mel Blunt because he was the best football player I ever played against. But anybody else in the mm-hmm. league, Glenn Dowdy could get an inside position and I could stick it in there and he would catch it. I uh, had a great tight end with Raymond Chester Ray who Chester, came from yeah. Oakland to us and, and he had a lot of speed and they had a guy, uh, uh, he was an unbelievable blocker, which a lot of people don't realize, but if Raymond Chester was over there and you had your tackle there and you double teamed, he was going for a ride. Uh, but he was a great receiver, uh, had good hands, a lot of fun to be around. And then you had Roger Carr, who was um, – he's a funny story. He played at Louisiana Tech, which was my hometown. Hmm. Uh, a lot of people don't know this, but when he came – his grandmother, he came from a broken family. Uh, and so he lived in Cotton Valley. They didn't have football in Cotton Valley. So he came, he, he played a freshman year or so in Oklahoma, but he came to Louisiana tech and, and they had his grandmother made him go to college. (laughs) So he, he was out in spring of his freshman year or sophomore year. And they had an intramural track meet. And so he broad jumped like, 23 or 24 feet I mean the track coach goes where did this guy come from and so the track coach went up to him and said hey if you'll broad jump for me um I'll pay for your school he goes wow yeah how do you do sign me up (laughs) sign me up well the track obviously was around the football field and while he was just playing around he started punting the ball they they had spring training. He started punting the ball, and and Max and Lambright looks at him, and goes, "Whoa, have you seen this guy that can punt the ball?" And so <laughs> they get him out there to punt for him. Well, you know, if you'll punt for us, we'll pay for your room and board. Heck of a deal. <laughs> I, I'm in. 
<laughs> and then they saw how fast he was, and then he became a receiver. So he never really wanted to play football. It was just a mm. means to an end to get him through school. Mm. But when he came to uh, to Baltimore's first year, he had a hamstring problem and didn't really bloom. But the next year, all of a sudden, he was on fire. And I'm telling you, uh, we played in the Pro Bowl, and I don't know if you remember the receiver Cliff Branch. Oh, yeah. Who played at Oakland, Olympic Absolutely. sprinter. I remember them running together, and Roger was just – stride for stride hmm. and so without a doubt he was one of the fastest guys in the league and my old roommate at LSU a guy named Tommy Casanova uh, all-american defensive back yeah yeah and he played in yeah. Cincinnati and yep. he played in Cincinnati because Paul Brown said he could go to medical school uh, and play ball and that's because he told everybody else he wasn't going to he wasn't going to play because he's going to medical school and so Paul called my daddy and he said, hey, is Tommy really serious about not playing pro ball? He said, yeah, he's serious. Hmm. And he said, well, if I can get him in the University of Cincinnati, you think he'll play? He said, well, we'll ask. <laughs> and so long story short, he went to medical school while playing defensive back for Cincinnati. And Tommy was saying, you know, we had no idea Roger Carr was this fast. He said, Ken Riley has never had anybody beat him on a go in the history of him playing quarterback. And we beat him twice in one day. And he goes, where did this guy come from? <laughs> but he was on fire, had a great speed, great uh, great hands. And he, he, he reminded me a little bit of Paul Warfield in that he could glide and cut, glide and cut, uh, you know, and he had, he didn't have the lateral movement of uh, a Joe Washington or a Lydell Mitchell, uh, but he wasn't far from it. Just uh, straight out speed and uh, let, let Roger Carr run that fly pattern. Look yeah. out. You know, Give me enough uh, time to let him yeah. create some separation, and here yeah. we go. Rustin Rifle does the rest, exactly. And, uh, you mentioned about that, that, that if you struck a nerve there, looking at some of the highlights here and getting ready to talk to you. And, uh, yeah, I think I caught the game uh, where uh, what, 37 Tommy Casanova was left in the dust by Roger Carr going right by him. You can see 81 go right by 37 <laughs> of that Bengals game. <laughs> well, actually, Tommy was not in coverage on him. He had already beaten the corner, and uh -huh. Tommy came in and actually hit him late. I gave him a hard, uh, a hard time at that. He hit him late in the end zone. Did you see that? <laughs> I think yeah, that's right. That's right. Oh gosh. So I, I still to this day give Tommy a hard time. He's he's practicing medicine in Crowley, Louisiana, oh, and we're still good friends. He's 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 back back home in Louisiana. Why wouldn't he be? And uh, I I know we have a. Uh, a mutual friend who was uh, with the uh, the Baltimore Colts uh, for a number of years uh, in, in administration, uh, media relations, and then uh, also uh, as uh, general manager and then general manager of the Cleveland Browns and then with the New York Giants when I met him, Ernie Accorsi. And uh, Ernie uh, talked about the final game of the 1977 season against the Patriots as one that he would absolutely unforgettable and uh, a game in which uh, was bad enough. You were down fourteen to three at the half, but uh, it got uh, well. It, it it got exponentially worse on the second half kickoff when Ray Claiborne won one hundred and two yards. Now you're down twenty one to three, uh, one play into the second half. And uh, is that a game that, when you think back to uh, your best days or most memorable days as a pro, bringing the Colts all the way back? Without a doubt, that that they had a great team. Timmy Fox, 
uh, Michael Haynes, they had a great defense. Steve Zabel was a linebacker. Andy Nelson, they had a great team. They had a great defensive team, and they were competitive. <clears throat> and they started leading – Timmy Fox started leading the cheers from the sidelines for the Colts. Uh, and that probably turned the game around. <laughs> uh, not literally. I give him a hard time about that, too. But uh, it was a great comeback. And we, and we did come back methodically, but true, uh, and came back and ultimately beat him. And that gave us an opportunity to go in the playoffs. And that final that drive for the lead, you went the length. You couldn't go any further. It was 99 yards on that, on that final drive. <laughs> Yeah, we had it in a the bag. There was no question about it. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> Raven Chester still laughs at me because I looked at him and I said, we got it. <laughs> yeah. Nothing to worry goes, about. Nothing to worry about. He goes, you're a sick person, Bert. <laughs> <laughs> of which I was and still am. <laughs> well, it, but as the, and as the quarterback, Bert, you know, once again, you got to convey that. You know what? You, you may have a little bit of doubt inside, but. The other oh, 10 I guys in that huddle better not know. Absolutely. There was no doubt in my mind we were going to get this done. It was kind of like against Ole Miss. <laughs> exactly. Similar circumstances. Uh, Ernie also noted uh, in his memory, and it's a, it's a long memory of the NFL, and, and Ernie has got, a, obviously, a tremendous memory for detail. The play, and I went back and I watched it, you hit a 57-yard pass on that last drive to Glenn Doughty. And uh, Ernie said it was one of the best balls that maybe he, maybe that he ever saw thrown by an NFL quarterback, a long out uh, to Glenn Doughty, which was a key part of that drive. Do you remember that play? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, Glenn Doughty's um, main attribute was not speed. So everybody played him tight and tough. And he said, I think I got it. And I said, let's go for it. And sure enough, that guy bit on the inside and we took it. And uh, uh, it was one of those things where I didn't have a whole lot of time, but kind of got it on a rope to him. But 57 yards is nothing. <laughs> <laughs> well, you used to warm up. You used to, what, throw 50 through the goalposts as part of your warm up? I, I won more. $20 bills. I shouldn't say this because that tells my mother. That Wait a minute. That's gamble, the gambling. So, yep. That's the gambling. I'm yep. in trouble now. Absolutely. Fortunately, I don't think my mother will pull up a podcast. Um, <laughs> although she might. <laughs> I hope she, <laughs> yeah, that's around, like, man. check it out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I used to stand on the 40 yard line and take bets uh, that I could hit the crossbar right where it came in. And it was one of those things, you know, a pitcher has a sweet spot where he can throw every time. Well, that was a sweet spot. I could just go boom. And as long as I kept the, you know, the vertical deviation correct, it would hit it, I'd say, half the time. But I always got pretty good odds. <laughs> <laughs> not, not, not bad. And uh, an, another note uh, from uh, the esteemed Ernie Accorsi about your success against the Patriots. Bobby Howard was the corner, by the way, for the Patriots that got beat. Number 24 was Bobby Howard that Glenn Doughty beat. So I just uh, wanted to know if Bobby, I don't know if Bobby's watching or Bobby's going to listen, but uh, at any rate. Well, uh, you are in Boston now. I've got a good friend that's up there now, so <laughs> he's done pretty well himself. <laughs> you said you have a good friend up there? Yes, in Boston. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. 
he coaches up there. Uh huh. Yes. Uh, yeah. He was uh, just. Uh, I think he was twelve when you first met him. As a matter of fact. Well, no, yeah. he was. Um, <laughs> he had graduated from college. He and I were about the same age. I think he was. That's right. A year or two younger than I. How old is Billy now? Yeah, Bill's. Well, I think uh, Bill is uh, probably. Uh, I think Bill's born in fifty or fifty-one. Yeah, about sixty-eight well, now. Well, I was born in fifty-one, so I guess we were the same age. Yeah, the same age. He looked like Doogie Howser of coaches, though, in those pictures from that time. Hey, I know? helped get him his first NFL paycheck. Really? You didn't know that, did you? I did they not were, know they, that. He, oh yeah, he came up there as his father coached at the Naval Academy, and he came up Steve, there. Steve. Yep. Uh, just as what we would call in college a graduate assistant to break down films and do things. But I mean, he was like a dry sponge. And you, every time you threw something about football, it was like water to a sponge. I mean, it's, he soaked everything up mm. and needless to say, he's been pretty successful with it. Uh, but yeah, he, he slept in the, he probably won't tell you all this, but he slept in the training room on the table. <laughs> and we got him his first check for $25. <laughs> He's cashing bigger ones now, but everybody's got to start somewhere. The journey of a thousand miles, the first step. Oh, isn't that the truth? Very, very, very impressive. And uh, Bill waxed philosophical and uh, glowingly uh, when asked uh, back in, uh, I think it was 2008, uh, when the, the perfect Patriots were getting ready to play the Giants in the Super Bowl about great NFL quarterbacks and he put you right at the top of the list. Nobody threw the ball. Nobody had a release. Nobody had arm strength, accuracy like Burt Jones. You probably had, well, I don't know. Your, your phone might have been uh, blowing up when that happened. I don't know if people picked up on that immediately, but well, when you did find out about what he had to say about you. Well, <clears throat> that's the only time I've questioned his judgment. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, but it's certainly a, a supreme compliment coming from one of the greatest coaches ever. Mm-hmm. He said best, he said best pure passer he ever saw. Uh, and to talked about your athletic ability, the, the, the whip, uh, del, you know, delivery, the quick delivery, the accuracy and, uh, and just getting back to Ernie, one of the, the, the notes that I had from Ernie, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention this. And you think back to the cerebral quality of the position and Ernie, Ernie talked, as you did, about just how good those Patriots teams were that you beat out every year for the division yeah, championship. Yeah, they were extremely talented. And, and you know, extremely Ernie went right talented. up and down, down the line. I mean, at, at a number of positions, they might have had the best player in the NFL with Francis and Gray and Hanner and Oh, they Cunningham were all good. And, oh, good and, quarterback, see, good running yeah, backs, good yeah. defensive backs, good linebackers. Yeah. Good defensive lineman. John Hanna was a pretty good offensive lineman, too. He was, pre- he was pretty good. Hog Hanna, absolutely. Uh, Haynes and Hunt and, and Fox. But uh, see if you, uh, if you agree. I know you and Ernie are pretty close. Ernie said the, the, the biggest factor in those games was the fact that the Patriots got into blitz packages in terms of pressuring you. And I believe his quote when I talked to him earlier in this week was, "Please blitz me." <laughs> absolutely, he said. Bird could Please just eat, bring them on. <laughs> absolutely, he, he said. Bird could just eat that blitz alive, and that oh, was a big love, factor. Well, it 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 gave you an advantage. Of course, I always had to figure out who the one person that was on me was and avoid that person hmm. uh, in your coverage. Needless to say, but yeah, if you give me one on one. <clears throat> excuse me, and some time, uh, 
uh, I'll take that any day of the day, any day of the week. And so, yeah, I love to see somebody blitz. 1978 season and uh, well before it was actually in the preseason and I'm, I'm sure you're sitting back now the debate about eliminating they might even eliminate the preseason games at that time you know once upon a time for any of the younger viewers six exhibition games and uh, bad enough that you suffered your shoulder injury but Bert, that shoulder injury was in the sixth exhibition game yeah. as Ernie reminded me on yeah a concrete surface at the Silver Dome. You were playing on asphalt on top of it. I would like to say I don't remember that, but I do vividly. Hmm. Just and butts were sugar and nuts. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, just terrible circumstances. Bad enough to get hurt, but to get hurt in the sixth and final exhibition game. And, uh, meaningless. That, meaningless me, exhibition game. Yeah, absolutely. A meaningless exhibition game. That led to, uh, obviously, your, your struggles physically and getting on the field, staying on the field uh, during those years, and uh, also just a uh, just a, a general decline in terms of the the personnel and the state of flux that the Colts were in. I mean, it was uh, it was just Ernie the, got out. Yeah, that, exactly. <laughs> I, I still am mad at Ernie for getting That's ready to take you with him. We've been all right, That's but he right. saw the writing on the wall. Yep. I, I can. I shouldn't say this, but I'd go in the huddle and I would say, "Now, who is this eighty-four? <laughs> uh, what's your name?" And this is midway in the season. <laughs> uh, but you know, once again, it was all good. Uh, you know, my my one regret is I probably should not have tried to continue and play having a second degree AC separation. But you know, I. My mentality as a player was about a half bubble off. I, I uh, still reverted back to the linebacker days and thought that, you know, they paid me to play and it was just stupid. Uh, but, you know, I healed up and I had some great individual performances. Unfortunately, yeah. we didn't have any uh, as much talent as you would like to have to compete in the NFL. Uh, <laughs> I remember my left tackle was making $17,500 and was a, a tight end and the year before. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of a discrepancy. Which is, uh, not exactly what you want in your left tackle. Mm. No, no, indeed. That can but he was a nothing. great player. He came back at 260 the next year and was a great player. But <laughs> – he was a little overwhelmed when he was playing left tackle that first year. You, you said he you – now, you just cut out for a moment. You said he was only at, at – what What was his uh, – he was weighing in at? He was He was under 210. Under 210. My gosh. Yeah. Wow. Talk about <laughs> it. Even, even for then, that was – you know. Even for then. Yeah. I mean, but we didn't have a big line. But they were all very athletic and very skilled. I mean, we had George Coons. Yep. As a right tackle, Elmer Collett, Ken Huff, right guards, Ken Mendenhall as the center, uh, great player out of Oklahoma, uh, Robert Pratt, and then we had Wade Griffin and, and David Taylor and, and other left tackles that, that played well. And, and Wade Griffin, who came out of Ole Miss as a tight end, ended up my left tackle, uh, ultimately became uh, uh, just a hulk of a player and did a great job. But that was early in his career <laughs> when I had him. <laughs> right. right. That's right. A little bit of a difference there. And uh, 
you did have a chance to move on from Baltimore. And it wasn't like, I mean, you were still a young, young man when you went to the Rams. Old. I mean, you were, I believe, about 30 years old when you went. It wasn't like you were 38 years old when you moved on to the Rams. But what about the, the opportunity to get oh, a fresh a start? Yeah. It was going to be a fresh start. And lo and behold, when I get to L.A., uh, everything was going good. And then the NFL goes on strike for the first time during the regular season. Right. 82. And I'm going, this really is not a good thing. And so uh, uh, actually the week after the, the strike ended and we hadn't practiced three days, uh, a guy, we were playing the Falcons and he hit me right in the chin. <laughs> and he had about a five or six yard running start and, and uh, the nose tackle had was holding my left arm and was kind of curled up behind me and I had the ball in my right arm and I was like a punching bag. And so I guessed how to dodge him this way and he guessed correct, boom. And so dislocated my jaw and kind of cracked that little bone that goes up in there. And so I called time out and got Dr. Curlin to Curlin and Joe, Dr. Curlin was there and I said, pull this thing out. And he goes, Ooh, that's pretty ugly. And so, but ultimately I had, I didn't know it because I went back in and finished that game. And then I was playing the next game. And then I noticed I couldn't feel my left side very well or at all. <laughs> and he said, what's going on? I said, I don't know. Am I having a coronary issue? I, I feel like I may be having a heart attack. I can't feel my left arm. And he said, you need to come out and let's figure this out. And so ultimately they did. And that was pre-MRI days. So we had a di-injected CAT scan and they found out that I had a fractured C5 and ruptured mm. disc between uh, five and six. And so had to have a cervical fusion and stent in traction for five weeks before the surgery and four weeks after the surgery. So it was time to come back to my lumber business and run it full time. Mm -hmm. And uh, the only other, if you will, brush with the NFL, and I thought this was amazing. I, I think I remember reading about it at the time. Uh, 1990, the NFL, they initiated the quarterback challenge of both retired <laughs> and, and current quarterbacks. And uh, you were first among the retirees, which, you know, congratulations. But I think more significantly, particularly to Bobby Bethard, who the legendary general manager with the Chargers, you were third overall among the quarterbacks in that challenge. And I hadn't picked up a football in seven years. <laughs> I kind of, when I, when I brought it back, I put it on the shelf and never picked it up again. It was such an, a, an acute injury and departure that I, I just didn't deal with it. Mm. Uh, but yeah. And, and, and Bobby, he goes, Bert, I thought you hurt your shoulder. I said, yeah, well, I got that. Well, I broke my neck is what happened to me. He says, well, why don't you come back and play? And I said, well, they told me I had to quit. And he said, well, I'll send you to any doctor you want to go see. <laughs> but I said, now, am I going to be able to wear a baseball cap and hold a clipboard? He said, hell no, I need you to play. <laughs> and so I said, okay. So I picked out a couple of uh, doctors where I wanted to go visit your friends. Elmer Collett in San Francisco went up to see a doctor there and I wanted to go back to Baltimore, saw a couple of doctors there. And I finally went back to 
LA and saw Dr. Curlin, who was a dear friend at the time. He said, Bert, I can't tell you you can play now after having already told you to retire. He said, I, I just don't know. And I said, well, if you have any doubt, my lumber business is doing well. I've got three or I have four children that I need to see through school. I, uh, life is good. I don't, you know, so at that point I said, Bobby, I can't do it. <laughs> Just a very polite, no, I'm flattered, but no, thank you. Yeah. But I seriously thought about it. And, <laughs> uh, you know, once again, if Ann and butts were sugar and nuts. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, the, the one thing that in, in, in getting ready to talk today, I guess that amazed me to a certain, surprised me a little bit, someone that had such a great passion and a great love for the game, as you did from an early age, uh, someone that was in a unique position like you were with your dad and the exposure that you had uh, to, you know, not just any organization, but to the, to the Cleveland Browns and, and, uh, and being around the guys that you talked about. Was coaching ever on the table for you? I guess it's a great tribute to how much of a family man you are and how much the family means to you. Was that ever a temptation for you to get into, involved in coaching? Uh, initially, it, it, it kind of was. Uh, uh, the owner of the Rams at the time, Georgia Frontieria, uh, they said uh, John Hadle was the offensive coordinator then, and John was a good friend and a good coach. But she said, you know, why don't you come back and be my offensive coordinator? And I'm going, well, I don't know. Let me let me think about that. And so that was 82. My children, my twins were probably five or six about to start school. My third child was a year behind them. And I just had my fourth child was on the way. And I said, you know, it's kind of like IBM. I've been moved if you get mm. in the coaching business. And I, I just wasn't psychologically prepared to do that. I, uh, when my father coached, eventually he got out of coaching primarily because instead of being a six month gig, it mm. turned into a year round gig. Right. And, yep. and he just, he wasn't willing to make that sacrifice. And, and, at the time, my, the lumber business that I started with my brother needed my help. And I just said, you know what? Ruston's a great place to raise a family. L.A. is a great place, but I'm not sure it's where I want to raise my family. And, and knowing the lifestyle that all coaches have, I just said, you know, maybe not. You know, as, as someone that excelled at the position as you did to attain the heights that you did, and uh, once again, MVP of the, of the National Football League and College Football Hall of Fame and, and the rest of what we've discussed. What about your perception of the game today? I mean, you know. Oh, man, it's fabulous. It, I can you like the game today. imagine. Yep. Oh, I do. And, and they've made some great rule changes. I mean, mm. just think how much fun it would be. I can only imagine how much fun it would be to get in the shotgun and sit back there Freedom. and have them take seven steps back and look around <laughs> while you're running backwards uh, to sit back there and just watch things develop and, and, and play ball. Uh, so, yeah, it's a great game. Uh, and uh, there have been significant changes in the personnel. Uh, but if you really look at it, the skill players uh, are, are pretty much the same. I mean, the, the, the 
the running backs, I mean, Jim Brown, I can promise you could play today. Absolutely. Uh, the wide receivers, the Paul Warfields, the Roger Cars, these guys could play today. Uh, the thing that has changed, though, is, and I realized it when Richard Dent was in Washington and he was a defensive end, and, you know, I could break out, and, and I was pretty fast, not as fast as my father, but not far from him. Hmm. Uh, and I could always outrun him, and I was just lollygagging around, and he just ran straight through me from the back. I'm going, holy smoke. <laughs> So the speed and the strength of, of the offensive linemen and the defensive linemen and the linebackers is what has significantly changed things. And then the flexibility to get position players in and out of the game uh, is much more dramatic now where, you know, sometimes you've got eight defensive backs on the field. Mm. Uh, it would have been a little more difficult, but uh, I, I would love to have had that challenge. Mm. But they play great great ball i mean mm -hmm. I, I can hardly wait to see joe burrow go to cincinnati and have great oh, yeah. success and uh you know like i say i got a lot of friends archie and i've been friends I've, I've known all of his children since they were babies and joe ferguson and his family you know uh i, I think we all think the same it just like i didn't replace john Unitas. i just played the same position in a different era of football uh you know, nobody's going to replace Peyton Manning with the Colts. They're just going to play the same position that he did in a different era. We all had our time and space. And during your time, some of the, the significant differences, once again, uh, to the younger generation that may view, you called your own place. And certainly, <laughs> which is, you know, I, I, that's an aberration. You talk to somebody under the age of 30 about the NFL and, you know, it's headsets and it's plays being, but you, there was truly that field general mentality and, and also uh, that you were very, just lost it. I have you. No, I just lost it. That's right. Oh, you can still hear me? Yeah. Oh. Uh, yes. That, uh, can you see me? And, and how demanding you were in the huddle also uh, in terms of uh, your style. You had a very fiery style. <laughs> like I say, I used to be a linebacker and I ended up being a quarterback. Uh, yeah, but a lot of people think that that's difficult to call your own plays, but I was in such harmony with Ted Marchabrota when we were, we were in the groove that it wouldn't have made a difference had he sent the play in or had I He's called it myself. Uh, because we were in harmony in our thought process. I mean, I spent more time in coaching meetings than I did on the field practicing. So uh, when I made a call, the odds are Ted knew what I was calling. Okay. Uh, back? Mm -hmm. Oh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Bert, we just, we just lost you for just a moment there, okay? So, I got you, um, and I have your little uh, icon. I the little man's up there, okay. I, okay, I, I, I get you. can see me, I can keep going. Yeah, okay, no, I, I, I get you. You would just answer the question. I talked about demanding in the huddle. We can edit this, so. Um, but I just asked about demanding in the huddle, so you just answered that then. I did. Okay, if you have all right. the sound. Okay, all right. No, I, 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 I get you back now. Um, and uh, also, uh, 
I'd be remiss if I didn't ask this, Brett. When the subject comes up about arm strength, all-time NFL quarterbacks, uh, more often than not, your name goes to the top of the list. Uh, legend, urban legend. Could you throw in 100 yards? Could you throw a ball the length of the field? Is, is there any accuracy oh, yeah. to that? Yeah. <laughs> you could. Yeah. Goal line uh, to goal line. Yes. Okay. Even, yeah. Uh, okay. I tried to throw it out of Tiger Stadium once. I could throw it into Tiger Stadium, <laughs> but I couldn't throw it out because it was like 40 yards and still 50 yards up in the air. But I got it to the third row from the top. Uh, <laughs> but you know what? Arm strength uh, is not what makes a quarterback a quarterback. It's knowing where to put the ball on the field, knowing how to execute the play, whether you call it or somebody else does. And, and, and putting yourself in the best position on the field at all times, whether it's running or throwing or delivering. You know, the motor skills of, hey, you have to throw this 20-yard out, hmm. that's a given. You just have to be able to do that. It's whether or not you can pick out the one 20-yard out that you're supposed to throw it to that makes a quarterback. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would say the fact that I have visited, I covered the NCAA baseball tournament uh, back in 2003 at Alex Box Stadium down in Baton Rouge. I would say be careful at your own peril throwing a ball out of Tiger Stadium. It might land in Mike the Tiger's cage. You never know. Well, you'd have to cross a road, and so that wasn't going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> and they have a net over the top. So That's that, right. that was not one of my great fears. <laughs> uh, right. But, yeah, how about that LSU baseball? Have you ever seen anything like that? What a show. I'm telling you, it is, it is without a doubt the best. I was probably at the same game with, that you were at. Yep, it was I, a regional. Uh, yep. Yeah, I was two, there. <laughs> two, two, 2003. Well, I, I, got a, I covered LSU baseball twice for uh, CSN, Creative Sports Network. The other uh, series that I covered, to see if you remember, there was a super regional. I believe it was 2001. Tulane was actually ranked higher than LSU and they played in Metairie at the Houston Astros Zephyr facility. Stadium. Zephyr right. Stadium. At I Zephyr Stadium. Superdome, Superdome Commission or the Superdome Board of Directors during that time when we built that stadium. Uh, yeah, and uh, Tulane's always had a great baseball. Even when my grandfather was there, he had back. a great baseball program. Uh, Coach Smith did a great job, and, mm -hmm. and even today. Uh, they they play well and they're competitive, and there's no still no love loss between LSU and Tulane when it comes to athletic sports. <laughs> I know I noticed that that weekend, as a matter that? of fact. Yeah. Yes, I did. It was uh, the series went the distance, and uh, Tulane uh, beat LSU that weekend, advanced for the first time, two games to one. And if there's any doubt as to uh, how ardent the uh, supporters are and diehard rabid the supporters are of LSU athletics. The tickets were pretty much in control of Tulane that weekend, Bert. And routinely, LSU fans had to sign up, I think, to become members of the Green Wave Club. Uh, in order to get tickets, they had to become members of the Green Wave Club, I believe, at the $500 level just to buy tickets. And they were signing up uh, pretty, uh, pretty regularly for that privilege. Not a problem. Of course, <laughs> I, I have the unique distinction that I am an LSU fan but I'm also a Tulane fan. Right. So, uh, can't lose. You can't lose other than when they're playing 
I, I do root for LSU. But uh, uh, trivia, are you ready? Are you big into trivia? Uh, yeah, I'm not bad. Yep. All right. Name one college football player that has played for LSU and beat Tulane and then played for Tulane and beat LSU. Well, I guess it's got to it's got to be Dub Jones. You got it. <laughs> the only one alive. The only one not alive either. Absolutely, dead or alive, exactly. It's still very much alive. That's right, because the fact that he had split between the two schools, I had a yeah, feeling well, that he was. He went my... to LSU as a freshman and played. They had pretty good players there too, uh, and then everybody joined the the military, and he went into the Navy in the V twelve program. LSU was Army school. Tulane was a Navy school. Navy so school. he transferred to Tulane and then played and beat LSU. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I got one, one other note about your dad that his name has come up now three times. If I don't mention this, I'll, uh, I'll be tossing and turning tonight. Was uh, his role in the development, the discovery, if you will, that this guy's playing out of position. Paul Warfield was actually a defensive back. And your dad, I guess he had a discussion and said, we got to get this guy over on the offensive side. I think he can play my position. I think he's a flanker. Uh, well, that is a true story. I, uh, Paul Warfield, let's see, in, was it uh, 2014, they had a reunion for the last Cleveland championship team, which was the Cleveland Browns, 1964, uh, their victory over the Baltimore Colts. Right. And so, and then the time, and then prior to that, my father was a player, but my father was a player for the Browns when they won six championships. Uh, and then he coached as offensive coach. And, but I was laughing. They brought the whole 64 team back. And of course I knew Paul Warfield from training camp. And so Paul came up to me and I'd heard the story, but he told me, he says, I'll never forget. I mean, back then, rookie camp meant that you came to training camp a week before uh, the, the veterans came in. Mm -hmm. And so he was there. And it, after about a week, he says, you know, everybody has a Turk. You know, uh, the coach wants to see you and bring the, the playbook. Yep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so he'll never forget. A coach came to him and says, uh, uh, Coach Collier would like to speak with you. And uh, Paul said, I hadn't even been here a week and I'm about to get cut, you know? <laughs> and so he goes in there and, and Blanton was there and Blanton was hard of hearing. Uh, and my father was there and Howard Brinker was a defensive backfield coach. And my daddy had already set this up with Howard. He said, Howard, this guy is a phenomenal athlete. He will do us more good on offense than he will on defense. And Howard says, well, he's going to be the best defensive back I've got, too. I said, do you want to score 40 points or do you want to win or tie zero to zero? You know? <laughs> he said, well, I guess you make a good point there. And so, yeah, he came in there. And so, as Paul would tell the story, he said, now, Paul, we need to make a change. We would like to move you to offense. And he goes, holy smoke, I thought y'all were cutting me. This is great. <laughs> Turned out to be a pretty good move all the way to the Hall of Fame for Paul Warfield. Yes, indeed. 
good, good, good eye for talent with, with, with your dad. And uh, you, these, these words fair to describe you as a player, fiery, intense, competitive, uh, a tolerance for physical errors, but no tolerance for mental errors. You expected guys to prepare like you prepared. I did. I, I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> no apology. Okay. And, yep. and you know what? Yep. When we were competitive, everybody was on, on point just like I was. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And uh, you mentioned about uh, Joe Burrow. You still follow LSU football uh, pretty closely. And I, I want to try to make my guests feel at home. I was actually for the Creative Sports Network. I had an opportunity to be there. I saw your shirt when you walked on the set. That's right. I wasn't going to say anything, but uh, impressive. I, I, I was there. You did homework well. I was at the Superdome. I had, I had a pass from Creative Sports Network that I had uh, covered the college baseball. Uh, my friend Mike Harrison, and uh, I had a pass for that game, a media pass to cover it. And uh, that, was, uh, that, was a, that was a big night on Bourbon Street with LSU defeating uh, Oklahoma. That was uh, Nick Saban's national championship. And, of course, yeah. there's been a couple to follow. I was there. <laughs> and you were one there. Of my son, one of my son-in-laws uh, went to Oklahoma. And so my oldest son, they had a bet, not a gambling bet, but mm-hmm. whoever won the game had to wear that hat out of the stadium. And when I tell you my son-in-law <laughs> is Oklahoma, he's Oklahoma. And so not mm-hmm. only did they get a hat, they got one of those tiger heads, and he oh. had to wear it out of the game. Oh. So. Crush it. it was brutal, brutal. Yeah, that 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 one hurt. And uh, you, you mentioned earlier high hopes for uh, Joe Burrow. You must have really enjoyed the magical run for Ed Orgeron and Joe Burrow this year. I'm sure you enjoyed that uh, as as a fan. Oh yes, indeed. And of course, uh, I, I I am the perfect LSU fan. I cheer for them. Period. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Coach O is such a fine guy and a good coach and. And I, I was just tickled to death for him. Uh, it was so fine that he, he, he made what a run they've had. I think it is without a, a doubt in my mind, the greatest football college season ever, mm. period. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and, and Joe had the greatest run I have ever seen. And, and he has, you know, his motor skills are great but his mental aptitude on the field is spectacular. Mm-hmm. He knows what to do with the ball. He has a positive outlook. I, I can only expect great things uh, in the pros from him. And he's a great guy. Yeah. He doesn't like to hunt and fish, but I won't hold that against him. <laughs> Other than that, he's, he's an, more Joe of an adopted, adopted son of Louisiana with his Ohio. He's going to have to be more indoctrinated to the hunting and fishing. Well, They've got some, I'll never forget as a kid growing up, pheasant hunting in Ohio with my father. And and I think Bernie Parrish went and Warren Lahr and just a, a, a lot of old players that I knew. So there there's some great outdoors in Ohio also. Mm-hmm. You know, it, but it, as he it, says, I'm yep. more of an inside guy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's more of it exactly as opposed to yourself. And, uh, you had the, you know, once again, what they look for today in terms of uh, athleticism, mobility. You had the mobility. As you look back on 
some of those injuries and the perpetually broken ribs. Did you run too much, Bert? Would you would you change yes. anything about that? No. No. <laughs> no. Yes, I ran too much. Would I change anything? No. No. Yep. <laughs> Taking on some of those guys. Yep. A half a bubble off. Mm. <laughs> That's a level in case you're not in the construction business. <laughs> okay, half a bubble. Okay. I was what Yeah. Bert, it, it been great spending time and uh, as we as we wrap up and we look back to a guy that was a, an NFL star in the 70s, there was only one real measure of status. You either got a light beer commercial or you didn't. <laughs> and I drink Miller Lite because it has a third list calories in the ring can, <laughs> and it tastes great. And, and, and it it's in three of my four children through college. <laughs> <laughs> Most importantly. And, yeah. uh, just, and what do you remember? I went back and uh, brought back the memories of when they first aired. You did one uh, where it was a little bit of a test of strength where you couldn't quite match L.C. Greenwood. Yeah, that was, that was kind of demoralizing for me. Yeah, I you thought know. so. Uh, they hadn't opened it, and, and they filled it up. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I was at a severe disadvantage. But, you know, the creative genius of, of those guys up there. It was a great run for uh, – I don't think there's ever been a commercial uh, program run that was as successful as that. I mean, it was a lot of fun. And, and, and the other one was, uh, was absolutely priceless, uh, including uh, the play on words involved. You and Ben Davidson, the, the thought of you and Ben Davidson loose on the streets at Mardi Gras as you the king. <laughs> yeah. King, and, ben, and Ben was Kong. It was King Kong at Mardi Gras. <laughs> and we had a lot of fun. Oh, and, it and, looked like you had oh, a ben, ball. Ben, what a great guy. Oh man, we had more fun together, and and just that cast of characters was a hoot. I, I think the funniest person I've ever been around in my entire life is Bob Uecker. Bob Uecker. I mean, sure. this guy is a riot, and 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 he can grige with the best of them. I mean, it is a hoot. <laughs> <laughs> and with you as the king, I thought uh, you know once again, God bless. Uh, whoever on Madison Avenue was was uh, writing the ad copy. Do you remember what you said to Ben Davidson with the poor? Do you remember the I've line? been hitting the head too many times. No, <laughs> tell me. Well, it, it, it does refer to the head because as the king, the poor, and you said, on with his head. Oh, there I do you remember go. that now. Yeah. Great line. Great line. <laughs> and and, and uh, my executive producer who has roots to Baltimore – uh, little Andy Bernstein remembers going to Luskin's Appliance, and I believe that Mr. Luskin. I remember had talking to Andy back then. He was he was yes. a little bitty guy, you know. Uh, he's grown up since then. Yeah, uh, he has a beard. He never beard then. Yeah. And we had more people at at the Luskin's Appliance Center than there were in Memorial Stadium two days before. I'll never forget that. Because that's the night that I always go in and Ted and I, at the time, would sit down and do nothing but break down film and break down film. And what do you think here? What do you think there? And it just really cut into my study time. Ah. And you, you did walk away for the, the, the price was the free television. You got a, you got a nice new oh, TV. Oh, yeah. Black and white. Still have it in my kitchen. <laughs> First wire doesn't have a chance. <laughs> Zenith TV, probably, right? Yeah. Nice oh, yeah, black and yeah, white Zenith. Zenith. Yeah, yeah, it was a good, it was a high quality, very inexpensive. 
Exactly. Well, little Andy Bernstein, all grown up, will will never forget that. I'll never forget this. Having the opportunity to uh, to spend time with you uh, here today, uh, it's been a uh, hopefully uh, you had as much fun as I did being able to I talk have, to you. I have. Now I do want to come to that sports bar. Yes, and, we'll get you to the and, force. All right, and I'd like to see that. I'm supposed to go up to Bo- actually. I was supposed to go up to Boston next month, but I'm I'm not going. I'm staying hunkered down. Yes. Maintaining my social distancing and <laughs> and always having a mask on properly uh, and, and making everyone around me do the same. Uh, and uh, y'all uh, be be well, healthy, and, and take care. Who was that masked man? It was all-time NFL great Bert Jones joining us today. With my COVID hair. I hadn't had a haircut since <laughs> March of, the night. Exactly. <laughs> absolutely, Bert. We're, we're even there. I think we've got a lot of company. But uh, we want to thank you uh, very much for uh, joining us. We really appreciate it. And uh, on the games people played, you played the game well. And uh, in the years since, you played the game of family man well with, I know you're very proud, your kids, your grandkids. And I think you're probably still enjoying that family bridge game with, uh, with the uh, mom and dad. Every Thursday night. <laughs> that gets the competitive fires going, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. But my mother and my father, they're almost 96, and their minds are like steel traps. They still spank me. And I, I'm, I'm not a bad bridge player now. So uh, uh, in the last uh, – my mother made it a bucket list. All of her children had to learn how to play, and all their spouses. And so every Thursday night, and for about the first five years, it was lessons, but now it's a free-for-all. <laughs> it's, it'll still... it's a bloodletting. It, it, it's a bloodletting. It'll still and always will be a, a competitive night of bridge. It'll bridge night in Ruston. And uh, be, be ready. Be prepared. Thanks very much. Y'all come see. A- absolutely. Look forward to seeing you here at the Fours in Boston. God bless, Bert. Bert Jones, our guest here. Uh, once again, as we uh, wrap up Season 1, Episode 4 of the Games People Play. And uh, Bert uh, certainly played the game well. And I really appreciate having him here with us this week. Thanks to everybody that makes the games people play possible. My executive producer, little Andy Bernstein, a little bit older than he was when he got Burt Jones' autograph at Luskin's, nevertheless. Uh, Also to uh, the Seattle crowd, to Todd and Kiwan for uh, working with us. And uh, once again, to the Fours Restaurant, where Burt will visit. Maybe we'll get Burt on the menu. Robert Parrish is on the menu. Maybe we'll get another proud son of Louisiana on the menu with Burt Jones at some point in the future. Also, thanks to uh, Kirsten Kelly and uh, to uh, Phil Castanetti at Sports World, as always. So for the games people play, we'll be back with you next week. Play the game well. Until then, this is Bernie Corbett. Good afternoon, everyone.